Today on episode 24 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we discuss whether an appeal stays collection of attorney fees following a successful anti-slap motion, and whether an amended complaint always restarts the 60-day period. Cue the announcer guy. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. As the saying goes, life is what happens while you're busy making plans. We moved into a beautiful new home and I had to get a new recording location set up, so it's been a while since I've posted an episode. It's nice to be back. Welcome to the 24th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a partner with the California law firm of Morris & Stone. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700 or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Exciting times at Morris & Stone. I'm recording this on Saturday, and on Monday and Tuesday I have hearings on anti-slap motions. Back in episode 21, I told you about the California Supreme Court decision of Baral versus Schnitt, Baral versus Schnitt, which finally resolved the split of authorities over how to deal with mixed causes of action that contain both protected and unprotected speech. I recommended that based on the language of Baral versus Schnitt, you should treat an anti-slap motion more like a motion to strike by setting forth the language you want stricken from the complaint if it's not the entire cause of action. Now, the hearing I have on Tuesday is that sort of a case. Now, get this. My client had sued in small claims court and lost. The defendant from that action in small claims court then turned around and sued my client in unlimited court, claiming a list of acts by my client that had caused him to suffer emotional distress. And one of the things was the fact that he'd been sued in small claims court by my client. He actually listed the case number in the complaint. He said, as a result of the filing of case number 123456, I suffered emotional distress. I just don't know how an attorney fails to realize that that's a slap. You're suing somebody for having sued you. Anyway, that's the one that will be heard on Tuesday. I followed my own advice and wrote the motion as more of a motion to strike, seeking to strike the allegations about the small claims action. We'll see if the judge is able to follow the process. The second case is perhaps even crazier. Some internet discussion group had not very good things to say about a business, so the business decided to sue everyone who had made comments about the business. One of the people posting comments used the name, I don't know, let's let's call him Magic Man. The plaintiff named my client as a defendant, claiming he was Magic Man. The only problem was my client is not a part of that group, has never posted anything about the business, has never used the screen name Magic Man, and doesn't even know anyone who uses that name. The the plaintiff might as well have sued you. I mean, my client just had nothing to do with this. Now, prior to my involvement, prior counsel had tried to talk reason to plaintiff's counsel, but had been unsuccessful. So I filed an anti-slap motion on two fronts. First, I said the comments are protected and are not defamatory. And second, I said that even if the court concludes that they are defamatory, plaintiff cannot satisfy the second prong because he won't be able to show that he is more likely than not to prevail. In other words, if my client didn't post the comments, they presumably won't have any evidence that he posted the comments, and therefore they won't be able to put on sufficient evidence to show that they're more likely than not to succeed. So I thought this was pretty much a slam dunk, but then the plaintiff filed this crazy declaration from a third-party witness that just said, oh yeah, I know defendant, and he uses the screen name Magic Man. That's the declaration. 
That's what that's all the declaration says about the matter. I know the defendant and he uses the screen name Magic Man. In our reply, my client attested that he has no idea who this person is and reaffirmed that he is not Magic Man and has never posted anything about plaintiff's business. So this should be fun because there are a couple of competing considerations. On an anti-slap motion, the court does not weigh the evidence. The court looks at the plaintiff's evidence and makes its decision based on whether, if that evidence is credited, the plaintiff should prevail on the action. The court only looks to the defendant's evidence to see if, as a matter of law, it defeats the claim. If the evidence presented by plaintiff is that my client is Magic Man and my client denies that he is Magic Man, then the motion should be denied, assuming the statements are deemed to be defamatory. But an anti-slap motion is an evidentiary hearing. The plaintiff cannot rely on the pleadings or the arguments of counsel. The court has to treat the declarations offered just as though they are testimony to determine if that testimony is admissible. The statement, I know defendant, and he uses the screen name Magic Man, was offered without one hint of foundation or explanation. How does he know defendant? How does he know defendant uses the screen name Magic Man? Where has defendant previously used that screen name? For this reason, plaintiff's evidence should be rejected, and then my client's declaration should deliver the killing blow. My fear is always, however, that the court will analyze the facts like a motion for summary judgment. The judge will say, well, there's a dispute as to whether your client is magic man, so let's, let's just sort it all out at trial. If the judge punts in that manner, I'm 90% confident I can get it reversed on appeal, but let's hope he rules properly. Neither of these judges offer tentative rulings, so I can't tell you their thoughts just yet. I'll let you know how they come out. Now, I'm sure I don't need to say this, but I always change the facts of the various cases to protect the privacy of my clients, but the issues are the same. Okay, let's get to today's issues. The first, are the attorney fees awarded following a successful anti-slap motion stayed by the filing of an appeal? And second, does the filing of an amended complaint always restart the 60-day clock to file an anti-slap motion? The answers may be contrary to your understanding. First, let's make it personal. You filed an action, the other side successfully pursued an anti-slap motion, and now your client's on the hook for $200,000 in attorney fees. By the way, listen to the after show for a couple of stories about attorney fees. You know the anti-slap motion should not have been granted, so you have a great shot at doing away with the attorney fees on appeal, but will it stop the collection efforts if you file an appeal? You could stop any collections by simply filing an appeal bond, but what if your client can't manage to post a $300,000 bond? Before you answer, understand that generally speaking, an appeal does stay the collection of a judgment that consists entirely of costs, and CCP section 1033.5 has been interpreted as including attorney fees as an item of costs. Thus, appealing a judgment stays collection of a judgment consisting entirely of costs and attorney fees. Does that apply to attorney fees awarded after an anti-slap motion? Well, according to a case called Dowling v. Zimmerman, the answer is no. CCP section 917.1 specifically states that costs awarded by the trial court shall be included in the judgment, quote, however, no undertaking shall be required pursuant to this section solely for costs awarded under Chapter 6, commencing with section 1021, of Title 14. But the Dowling Court concluded that this applies only to routine costs and that under the anti-slap statute, the attorney fees awarded are more akin to kind of a form of punishment. It came to this conclusion by virtue of the fact that the attorney fees are not reciprocal under the anti-slap statute. Defendants must be awarded attorney fees if they prevail, but the plaintiff can only recover fees if he can show that the motion was frivolous. 
So Dowling concluded that attorney fees awarded following an anti-slap motion are not stayed, a collection of them is not stayed by the filing of, of an appeal. So back to making it personal, if your client gets hit with attorney fees and cannot post an appeal bond, you're going to be in for several uncomfortable months until you can get that judgment reversed. Now let's take a look at whether an amended complaint always restarts the 60-day clock regarding an anti-slap motion. I have said here, and the conventional wisdom has always been, that the filing of an amended complaint resets the 60-day clock for bringing an anti-slap motion. For example, in U versus Signet Bank, Virginia, the Court of Appeal concluded that an anti-slap motion filed within 60 days of service of a third amended complaint was timely, even though the motion could have been filed at the outset of the case. Admittedly, the U Court stated, this is not a case where an anti-slap motion was promptly made to counter slap allegations first added to an amended pleading, and the defendant's anti-slap theory appeared to have been an afterthought. Now, I've argued here that demurring to a complaint in order to force an amended complaint and then bringing an anti-slap motion is a valid strategy since it forces the plaintiff to clean up the allegations, often making the slap aspects of the complaint even clearer. But then along comes a case called Newport Harbor Ventures LLC versus Morris Cerullo World Evangelism. The facts of the case aren't particularly important beyond the procedural aspects. Newport sued Morris for breach of contract and breach of the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing. Now, Morris demurred once or twice, brought a motion to strike, and even a motion for summary judgment. Eventually, Newport filed a third amended complaint, this time alleging four causes of action. The breach of contract and breach of covenant claims that had been there all along, and adding two more claims for quantum merit and promissory estoppel. In response to this third amended complaint, Morris filed an anti-slap motion against all four claims. In opposition, Newport argued that the motion was untimely because it was not filed within 60 days of the original complaint, given that the original complaint had contained the same first two causes of action. Morris responded that the motion was timely because it was filed within 60 days of the amended complaint, and as Aaron Morris stated on the California Slap Law podcast, that always resets the clock. Okay, I made up that last part, but... The Court of Appeal agreed with Newport at least as to the first two causes of action for breach of contract and breach of covenant of good faith and fair dealing. The first two causes of action have been pleaded in earlier complaints, while the latter two causes of action were added to the third amended complaint. So here's what the court said, quote, We hold that under section 425.16f, an anti-slap motion is untimely if not filed within 60 days of service of the first complaint that pleads a cause of action coming within anti-slap protection unless the trial court, in its discretion and upon terms it deems proper, permits the motion to be filed at a later time. Thus we conclude the anti-slap motion was untimely as to the breach of contract and breach of implied covenant causes of action because Morris could have challenged those causes of action by filing an anti-slap motion to the prior complaints. The anti-slap motion was timely as to the quantum merit and promissory estoppel causes of action because they were new causes of action that could not have been challenged by an anti-slap motion to a prior complaint. Well, that's pretty clear, but it's not quite as simple as that ruling seems to indicate. The Newport v. Morris opinion cited to the earlier case of Hewlett-Packard Company v. Oracle Corp., which recognized the anti-slap statute's purpose and the need to prevent gamesmanship by both the plaintiff and the defendant. In Hewlett-Packard Company v. Oracle Corp., the Court of Appeal stated, quote, 
The rule that an amended complaint reopens the time to file an anti-slap motion is intended to prevent sharp practice by plaintiffs who might otherwise circumvent the statute by filing an initial complaint devoid of qualifying causes of action and then amend to add such claims after 60 days have passed. But a rule properly tailored to that objective would permit an amended pleading to extend or reopen the time limit only as to newly pleaded causes of action arising from protected conduct. A rule automatically reopening a case to an anti-slap proceeding upon the filing of any amendment permits defendants to forego an earlier motion, perhaps in recognition of its likely failure, and yet seize upon an amended pleading to file the same meritless motion later in the action, thereby securing the free time out. So basically, I probably don't need to explain this, but just in a nutshell, the, the plaintiff could, could engage in gamesmanship by, by not putting in the, the clear slap elements until an amended pleading and saying, ha-ha, you're past the 60 days. But the defendant could engage in the same sort of gamesmanship by uh, waiting and then using it as a fallback position later in the action. So it basically comes down to a weighing process, both Newport Harbor versus Morris and Hewlett-Packard versus Oracle both impose sort of a weighing test saying, well, let's see who's engaging in the gamesmanship here. But the reasoning of these decisions left a split. Some saying that the 60-day period was automatically renewed upon the filing of an amended complaint, and these other cases I've just cited basically saying you should engage in a weighing process, and if it's a prior cause of action, the 60-day rule applies. So the Supreme Court considered the Newport Harbor case and just came down with its opinion two days prior to this episode. The California Supreme Court stated the rule quite succinctly. It said, quote, Because the anti-slap statute is designed to resolve these lawsuits early, but not to permit the abuse that delayed motions to strike might entail, we conclude, as did the Court of Appeal, that subject to the trial court's discretion under Section 425.16, Subdivision F, to permit late filing, a defendant must move to strike a cause of action within 60 days of service of the earliest complaint that contains that cause of action. So that opinion creates a bright line departure from some prior decisions, but will it radically alter your approach to anti-slap motions? Probably not. Remember, the 60-day time limit is not jurisdictional. The court is always free to consider an anti-slap motion filed after 60 days. On multiple occasions, I've been brought into a case after the 60 days has passed, and I have successfully pursued an anti-slap motion that prior counsel failed to identify. If a case presented itself where an amended complaint was filed after I became involved, I'd still view that as a gift if it gave me a shot at an anti-slap motion. In a prior episode, I mentioned the strategies involved in bringing an anti-slap motion after the 60 days. You can seek leave or you can just file the motion, which has the advantage of putting in front of the judge a means by which he or she can dispose of a case on their docket. So sometimes it's better to just file it rather than to ask permission. So if you were attacking new and old causes of action and the court has to consider the anti-slap motion as to the new causes of action, it really does itself no favor if it refuses to consider the old claims as well. So I've got a feeling the way this is going to play out is if, if there was an amended complaint, like the, the example we've just been talking about, there's an amended complaint that contains four causes of action. Two of them have been there all along and two are new. And you, for the first time, bring your anti-slap motion and you also attack the first two causes of action. I think most judges are just going to say, well, I'm, I'm exercising my discretion, even though uh, those have been in the action all along and you could have brought the anti-slap motion within 60 days. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and consider them at the same time. Why, why would a judge let a cause of action go forward to trial if it's clearly protected speech falling under the anti-slap statute? Now, 
Although the Supreme Court decision just came out, I was obviously aware of the reasoning of Newport Harbor from the Court of Appeal decision, and here's the only impact it has had on my practice thus far, and this will be true going forward, I imagine. I recently got in a case where uh, that was really convoluted. The, the plaintiff created this monster hybrid complaint using forms and, and, and pleadings. And, and Anyway, it was, it was so difficult to follow the first time I read it through. I thought, okay, this is a perfect example of where I'm going to demur to the complaint. It was a defamation action, and, and it didn't even really specifically provide which statements were being attributed to my client. There were multiple defendants. So I was going to demur to it and, and tighten it up and then bring my anti-slap motion. But with the reasoning of uh, Newport Harbor, I decided, you know what, there's a better way to do this. I can actually just basically allege that all the statements that have been set forth, even though they don't identify whether or not they purportedly came from my client, they're all protected under the anti-slap statute. They're not defamatory, and therefore the anti-slap motion should be granted. So with that small consideration, with that small change, uh, that's how I'm viewing this, this decision, and that's how it'll probably impact uh, my practice. I will say, however, that now that the Supreme Court has spoken, I'm really glad that I proceeded in that manner on this one particular case so that the uh, opposition, they haven't even filed their uh, opposition yet, so they won't come back and try to use that against me saying I should have done it within the 60 days. But if I'd gone the other way and had had elected to demur and I was past the 60 days for a subsequent anti-slap motion, I would just explain why the court should exercise its discretion in considering the motion after the 60 days. As much as I know you love hearing me go on about slap matters, I'm trying a new shorter format so I can do more episodes and be quicker to report on cases. Uh, I hope you enjoy this format. The primary takeaway from today's show would be to consider whether you'll get a chance to bring an anti-slap motion later if you bring other motions first. Always take that into account. I hope I've shed some light on that issue for you. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. So I'm often retained to opine on fee applications following successful anti-slap motions. So far, I'm happy to report that my success rate remains 100% in getting fees reduced. Your mileage may differ. But I recently had a ruling that that really irritated me. I'm I'm tempted to use the firm's name, uh, but I'll refrain for now. Anyway, this Los Angeles firm brought a relatively basic anti-slap motion and thereafter filed a fee application for $400,000. I was brought in to challenge this application for $400,000. I've talked here before about the fact that there's case law that says if if a firm overreaches on their fee application, the court can basically say, well, you've inflated the application so much, we can't possibly trust what you're saying, so you're going to get no attorney's fees. I've never successfully argued that a firm should get no attorney fees, even on these greatly inflated cases, but I thought this was going to be the one. This is going to be the one because it's just so outrageous, $400,000. I've just never had such an outrageous application, so I really thought this was finally going to be the one where the fees were denied altogether. So in this application, there were there were five attorneys from the firm that had worked on the case. Three of them were partners, two of them were associates. The three partners charged $1,200, $950, and $950 per hour. The associates were around $495 per hour. So all told, they billed just shy of 400 hours preparing an anti-slap motion consisting of an 11-page memorandum of points and authorities and some supporting declarations. The partners did the vast majority of the work. The, The associates had very little to do with the motion. 
One partner, and this part just outraged me, one partner billed 80 hours, get this, billed 80 hours for preparation of a memo to the other partners on the issue of whether they should pursue an anti-slap motion. Then the three partners collectively billed, I think it was 50 hours preparing for oral argument. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Only one attorney for the defendant can argue the motion, but these three partners all billed time preparing for the oral argument. I didn't really even challenge the outrageous hourly rates beyond explaining that normally a $1,200 per hour partner doesn't prepare motions and that they would have been better assigned to the $495 associates who also worked on the motion. But beyond that, I really didn't even challenge these hourly rates. I know big firms command high hourly rates, so I don't usually spend much time fighting that point. Uh, Although there is authority for the proposition that the size of the firm doesn't dictate the reasonable hourly rate for purposes of a lodestar calculation. But I, I know Los Angeles judges, and I know they're used to seeing these outrageous hourly rates, so I don't spend a lot of time on that. Rather, my opinion challenged the ridiculous amount of time spent on the motion. I had reviewed the backgrounds of each of the partners, and and none of them had any anti-slap experience, but I stated that even starting from zero, even if you just, you you broke open the rudder group material on anti-slap motions for the first time, and you learned how to do an anti-slap motion, there was just simply no circumstance where this, this motion could have taken 100 hours to prepare. I'd be able to do this motion in probably 20 to 25 hours. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm giving them every possible benefit of the doubt. I said, okay, it just, it, it could not have conceivably in any universe taken them more than 100 hours to prepare this motion. So how did I do? How, how, did we get the fees reduced? Well, the judge reduced the fees by about $100,000. So I, I guess I, I guess the client got very good return on their money for my opinion, but that still means the firm received over $300,000 for an anti-slap motion and motion for attorney fees. That's, That's insane. But what really torqued me was the judge wrote that my suggestion that the motion could have been prepared in 100 hours failed to take into account, wait for it, the judge said that my opinion that this motion should not have taken more than 100 hours to prepare failed to take into account how big firms work. What the hell is this? In other words, in the judge's mind, it did not come down to how long the motion should reasonably take. He concluded that 300 hours was reasonable for a big firm because they are just incredibly inefficient. Or maybe he didn't think of it in terms of inefficiency. Maybe he just thought, well, that's that's the way they work. They're going to spend 80 hours doing a memo on whether they should do an anti-slap motion. And then they're going to spend 50 hours preparing for oral argument. I just... I, I just I just can't wrap my mind around that. I just I don't think the the reasonableness calculation should be based on the inherent inefficiency of, of a big firm, but that's but that's just me. In the years I've been doing this, my cautionary tales have gone up in their dollar amount. I remember back in the good old days when I would tell a client not to pursue what I could already tell was a a loser in terms of the anti-slap motion. I'd tell them not to pursue a defamation claim. Because you could end up being hit with a $25,000 fee application. But now, because judges just rubber stamp these fee applications, the unscrupulous attorneys just submit more and more outrageous claims. Now I'll have to caution callers that they could be facing a $400,000 fee application for an 11-page brief. Oh well, thanks for letting me vent. I I will say that same week I got a $50,000 application cut in half, so some judges are, are certainly open to reason. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.